Please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles now to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we're going to read verses 10 through 12. You'll find that on page 556 in the Bibles provided for you. Ecclesiastes 6, 10 through 12 on page 556. Many commentators see this, these verses here as a transition point in the book or a midpoint in the book where uh, Kohelet, the author, is, is summarizing where we've been so far. And so you can imagine how, how uh, hopeful <laughs> this summary will be after what we've already seen so far. But then he turns and the tone of the book doesn't necessarily get more hopeful, but it shifts in his focus in the second half of the book. Um, and so he does seem to be looking at big picture principles here in these verses, big Uh, big overarching ideas. And as you listen here, try to discern what kind of thinking Kohelet is warning against here. What's the opposite of what he's saying here? Ecclesiastes 6, verses 10 through 12. This is the word of God. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of arriving late to a situation where you're trying to fix something. There are other people who have been working on it for a while, and you show up late, and they don't seem to be doing much to try to fix the problem. And so you start saying, well, what about this? What what if we try this? Or what's this for? You hold up a tool. You say, well, what is this for? Maybe we could use this. Or what's, what about, what does this button do? Maybe what if we, could, we could do this or we could do that. And, and every time as you say it, well, they say, well, no. We know what that is. That, that's not going to help us. We've already tried that. We've tried this. We know what that is. And you get told again and again, uh, no, it's not really going to help. And you start to see the exasperated looks of those who have already tried these things and want you to understand that you are coming in with uh, a lack of knowledge. Just because you don't, you don't know what things are for doesn't mean that others don't know that it isn't already clear what those things are for and what they are like. That's something like what Kohelet is saying here in verse 10. Whatever has come to, be, come to be has already been named. Already been named in the sense that it's already, been, it's already clear what it is. It's already been investigated. It's already been classified. And its abilities and its limits have already been tested and, and clarified that this is what this thing is capable of doing. And that includes ourselves here. He says there that uh, it is known that he is a man. Or excuse me, it, the, the ESV says it. It says it is known what man is, and more literally in the Hebrew it says it is known that he is a man, that, that humanity is just humanity, that a human is a human. We're not waiting to figure out what humans are capable of. If we're willing to see it, if we're willing to look at history, we're not waiting to figure out what humanity is like. We're not waiting to figure out what, what strengths and capabilities humanity has. We want to think that we have the power to save ourselves. 
We like to think that we have the power to solve our problems on this earth. And the human spirit and human ability and human ingenuity are so often the, the great hopes in our world today, the great hopes in our culture today. But in this passage, Kohelet takes on a few of the, uh, the primary ways that we think that we can solve our own problems. Three, three ways that we think we can solve our own problems. But as bleak as his assessment is here, I hope you'll see this morning that in each of these areas where we see the emptiness of human power, that each of these, the, that the emptiness of this, these human solutions is filled by Jesus Christ and what he does as our Savior and as our mediator. In the darkness of these verses, these are bleak verses, these are dark verses, but in the darkness here, the light of Christ becomes that much more clear. And so friends, when you look at life, whether it's the problems of life, whether it's in society as a whole or just in your own life, if you find yourself saying, well, what's wrong with this world? If we, if we had only had more blank, then we would, we would be okay. Or if you say, well, if my life is so messed up, if only I had more blank, or if only I could do more blank, friends, if that's where you're looking for your hope, hear God's word this morning that shows us the emptiness of relying on yourself to make these things right. Brothers and sisters, rely on Christ, not yourself, to make things right. Rely on Christ, not yourself, to make things right. As I mentioned a moment moment ago, Kohelet takes on three of the primary ways that we like to think that we can solve our own problems. And each of them actually corresponds to one of Christ's offices of prophet, priest, and king. And And I'll be... I'll be honest with you, there was a time when I was really tired of people finding Jesus as prophet, priest, and king in every passage, and it seemed like people were sticking it in there, but I think it's really, it's clear here that these correspond, the ways that we try to save ourselves correspond to these three offices of Christ here this morning, and ways that we try to rely on ourselves. So first of all, instead of your strength, rely on Christ as your king. Instead of your strength, rely on Christ as your king. We've already started looking there at verse 10 together, but after what we've already looked at there, what's his assessment at the end of the verse? He says that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Not able to dispute with one, with one stronger than he. Kohelet is making you grapple with the question, how, how strong are you? Are you really able to stand up for yourself? Are you really able to stand up and defend yourself? When it comes to, to, to uh, making things right, to changing a bad situation into something better, what has humanity so often used throughout, throughout history? We have tried to make it right by force. We've thought that if we have the power of arms, the power of physical strength or of weapons, that we can make it better. If you have a bigger weapon, if you have the better position, if you have the stronger army or fill in the blank, with whatever power you want to, physical power you want to put in there, you can, if you have those things, we act as if we can make what we believe is right to happen on this earth. If you have the power and the strength, you can stand up to the bullies, you can stand up to the abusers, you can stand up to the invaders and the dictators, if you have enough physical or military power. And we'll see in a moment that there's a good and right place for the, for the use of physical force and, and in the, for the civil government and for each of us as individuals to, individuals to use physical force. But what is Kohelet reminding us of here? He says you're not going to be able to stand up to someone who's stronger than you. That's just the reality of our condition, that you're going to have people who are stronger than you and you aren't going to be able to stand up 
to them. Even in this, just in this life, how often is this true that no matter how strong you become, there's always going to be someone else who's stronger than you. Or there's going to be someone who sees a weakness that you didn't realize you had who's going to be able to use that weakness against you. The great and powerful of this world have so often found themselves taken down right when they thought they were invincible. Think of the great empires of history. We have in the Bible, you have the Assyrians and how unstoppable the Assyrians seemed. And it wasn't long before along came the Babylonians who, who destroyed them. And then along came the Medes and Persians who so quickly replaced Babylon. And then along came Alexander the Great. And then along came the Romans and so on and so forth through history. That The great and the powerful with the most well-equipped armies and the most strength you can have on this earth find themselves coming up against someone else who has some great ideas and some great strength. But friends, Kohelet isn't just telling us that, that that you have people on this earth who might be stronger than you. He's reminding us that even if you were the strongest in the world and could maintain that strength, this one stronger than he, in verse 10, also includes God himself. And most commentators looking at this passage actually say this is a a reference to God. This one who is stronger than he is a reference to God and his power. That after all of human, all that human strength can accomplish, all that we can do to strengthen ourselves, there is no way for humanity to stand against God. What does Psalm 2 tell us? Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers to take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And what's God's response? It says, He who sits in, heaven, in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision or think of Isaiah speaking of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22 it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness The strongest person on this earth cannot stand against the Almighty God. As we even if we forget it so often. But friends, in that bleak assessment of our strength and of our power, see the glory of having Jesus as our King. If we'd continued in Psalm two, as you may have heard me point out in the in the memorial service yesterday, what's the solution to our problem of being rebels against this King and, and facing his wrath for what we have done? The solution is that that king offers us refuge. The king offers us salvation. And he says, kiss the son, his wrath to turn. When that shouldn't be enough. It shouldn't be enough. To, when we have sinned against him, when we deserve his just punishment, it shouldn't be enough just to name Jesus as Lord and to trust in him. But this king who is sitting on that throne that we're talking about here is not just the, the almighty God in his kingship. It is Jesus who took that throne after he suffered on this earth. That the one who wears that crown on the throne now once wore a crown of thorns to take the punishment that you and I deserve. And so we have the opportunity then to come to him asking for mercy and to take refuge in him. Our reason to hope that that he will be our, our protector is not just some hope that he might do that. It's based on the concrete salvation that he has accomplished for us, that he did before, that he accomplished before he sat on that throne. Friends, if you will repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, then that one who is stronger than you goes from being your enemy to being your protector. 
the one who will conquer you if you don't repent, goes to be, becomes the one who, conquer, who will conquer all his and our, all his and your enemies. And friends, that protection is far more important than any physical strength you may have, any weapons you may ever have, any military power we might have. Because when you know that the king of kings is your king, then you can say with Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is, my, is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When you are tempted to think that strength and power are the answer, you're right in a way, but it's not our strength and power. It's the strength and power of our King Jesus Christ, who will crush all enemies, who will bring all of his enemies under his feet. Now, Kohelet is talking in broad principles here, and so we can't get into all of the detailed applications of these things. I encourage you to think through how these things impact our daily lives, but just in a few areas, practically, how does having Jesus as your king change the way that you approach the problems in this world and the problems in this life? One way to test this is to look at, look at your heart and, and think, how, what, what do you say after you think the thought, well, what we need is, what we need is blank in this world. What we need is this or that. And you might say, well, what we need, with all the violence and all the, the problems of powerful, wicked people in this world, what we need is greater nuclear capability than our enemies. What we need is a greater navy. What we need is greater cybersecurity than our enemies. And you might fill in the blank with all these things of what we need. And we do recognize that Jesus has appointed the civil government to wield the sword on his behalf, to be his servant on this earth. And so governments should have a military. Governments should work to be powerful in this way, to, to serve Christ faithfully. But all the nuclear power in the world doesn't matter if we're standing against Jesus Christ. If we are still standing on the wrong side of this conflict, if we're trying to stand up against the king of kings. And so our decisions as a government, our decisions as a people, should be based primarily on the fear of the Lord. That should be the driving factor, not thinking that our military capability will save us. But what about more personally, in your own life, in your own need to protect yourself in this world? Well, you might say, well, what I need is, what I need, is, or what we need is for more people, more responsible people to be carrying firearms. What we need is to have more people who are competent and trained in self-defense. And if, if more teachers were armed and equipped for this, we wouldn't have as bad of school shootings. We, we start to come up with all of these solutions that involve human power. Now, there is, we are commanded by the Sixth Commandment to honor life. And we should take whatever steps we can in our power to protect life, which may include using these kinds of weapons. But in those moments, where, is your, where, where are you placing your trust? Is your trust in your firearm on your hip or in your purse? Or is your trust in your King Jesus Christ who's watching over you? As you, as you hear of another shooting and then you're going to a mass gathering and you're going to one of these, these events where you may be concerned about something like this happening, where does your confidence lie? Does it lie in your ability to protect yourself? Or does it lie in the loving care of your King Jesus Christ? Because that is the only sure hope that we have. Now, with all this talk of violence and physical strength, you might, you might not be inclined that way. 
That might not be the way that you naturally think, and you maybe don't want anything to do with physical force and violence and those, these things, those kinds of things. You might be turned off by the idea of physical conflict. But if that's the case, often the, at the other end of the spectrum, we're tempted to think that talk and diplomacy will solve all our problems. If people would just listen to each other, if we could just, get a, if we could just talk, then we would get along. And sometimes we may even approach our relationship with the Lord in that way. If I could just explain, God would understand. But Kohelet takes on that thinking in verse 11. Here. So secondly, instead of your words, rely on Christ your priest. Instead of your words, rely on Christ your priest. When I first went to school after being homeschooled for quite a few years, I remember in the first week of class we had a quiz in our library orientation class. It really didn't matter very much. This quiz not very ma- mattered very much, but I remember I got uh, there was a question on the quiz that I was pretty confident about, and I got it wrong. It was a true or false quiz, and I got it wrong. And the librarian was explaining to me why I got it wrong. And I was indignant, because I thought that if I could have explained what I meant with this true or false answer, that it would have been perfectly fine. And I had often had the opportunity to explain myself when I was being educated at home, but I was learning about the cold justice of a written test, and that there is a right and there is a wrong answer. And the truth is, actually, I was wrong. I was wrong on this, on this question. And I thought, though, that if I could have explained it, if we could have had, a time, had time to talk, then everything could have been fine and everybody would have been happy. But, friends, that is not the case in this life. Kohelet says here in verse 11, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? After all the talk, after all the diplomacy, after all the arbitration and all the meetings and all the discussions and all the hearings and all the listening to each other is accomplished, the talk itself doesn't take away the vanity of this world. It doesn't take away the problem of sin. It doesn't take away the fruitlessness and sinfulness of the human condition. Now, Scripture does commend being diplomatic. Think of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.25, where he says, Come to good terms with your, your accuser quickly while you are with him on the way to court, so that your accuser will not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will not be thrown into prison. Proverbs 25.15 says, With patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. So scripture is not saying shoot first and ask questions later. It's not saying never try diplomatic ways of handling things. But it recognizes, this passage recognizes the limits of speech. That More talk in and of itself doesn't solve the problem. And just like in verse 10, this isn't just talking about our human relationships. This is also talking about a relationship with God. Maybe you've thought before that if you could just explain yourself to God, then he would understand. If you could talk long enough, if you could make your case well enough, then he would understand why you did what you did, that that would make everything right. If you had enough time, it would be okay. But Kohelet says the more words, the more vanity. You can't get right with God by talking enough. But friends, the good news here, again, is that Jesus, the good news isn't that, is that Jesus isn't just our king, it's that he's also our high priest. If you, are in, if you are in Christ here this morning, do you know that Jesus is interceding for you right now? That Jesus is speaking on your behalf. He is talking, he is making your case before the Father on your behalf. In Hebrews 
We're told that Jesus is the great high priest, and it's drawing on that Old Testament shadow, that Old Testament picture of the high priest being the only one who is allowed to enter to the holiest place, into the Holy of Holies, to intercede for his people. And it, we're told there in that context in Hebrews 9.24, for Christ has entered not into, the, into holy places made with hands, the tabernacle and the temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And earlier in Hebrews 7.25, it says, He is able to save the, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Friends, you need your cause to, your, or your case to be made. That's a good, that's a right feeling or a right desire of us to have our case made, to have our, our, our situation explained. But you need something that makes your case worth arguing And you need someone with perfect wisdom to argue that case for you. And it's only in Jesus Christ, the high priest, that we get both of those things. Because it's only in Jesus Christ that his blood pays the penalty for our sins so that we are regarded as righteous before God's sight. And there is any case to be made in the first place. And also, it's only Christ who has that perfect wisdom to present our case and to speak to the Father on our behalf. Friends, you have something so much better to rely on than your own words. You have someone so much better to rely on than yourself in speaking with the Lord. Are you tempted to think that saying more will make it right? Think about your relationship with the Lord. Jesus tells us you are not heard for your many words. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of coming to the Lord and you know you've done something wrong and you spend a while in prayer. You maybe pray for a long time, but you really haven't repented. And you haven't really appealed to the Lord for mercy, but you feel better because you've prayed. You've spent some time with God. And you maybe feel like you've undone what you've done wrong just because you poured out your heart, or you just you talked for a while with God. But friends, that's not the basis of our salvation. That's not the basis of our peace with God. The basis of our peace with God is Christ. And often, a prayer of repentance and confession will be very short. It'll be the words of the, the tax collector and Jesus', Jesus words about the Pharisee and the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. We're not heard for our many words. We, we can't convince God by being wordy or eloquent. We cry out to him in simple terms, counting on Christ to intercede on our behalf. Think also about how you relate to others in your life. What would happen if you spent less time agonizing over the right words to say to someone and more time praying about that conversation and asking the Lord to help you? Less time thinking about how to use just exactly the right words to talk to this person and more time on your knees before the Lord asking him to help in this situation. There's a good time to be slow to speak and to think carefully and to choose your words well. And fitting words are a beautiful thing. But friends... We need, to be, we need to be counting on the Lord in these things, not counting on our own wisdom to come up with the right words. Are you spending as much time asking God to give you the right words to speak as you are trying to figure out those words yourself? Now, if military strength and diplomacy aren't the answer in themselves, what about the other most common humanistic solution to our problems in this world, the solution of education? If people just knew better, if they knew more, if they were fully enlightened, then we wouldn't have the problems that we have. Well, Friends, we see that here in this next verse. Instead of your knowledge, rely on Christ your prophet. 
Instead of your knowledge, rely on Christ, your prophet. Look at the way that Kohelet addresses knowledge in verse 12 here. What kind of knowledge specifically does he address? He talks about, he says, who knows what is good for man? And then in the next question, he says, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Who knows what's good and who knows what will come after? In other words, who knows what's right and wrong? And who knows what's going to happen in the future? Or we could say, who knows the truth about ethics? And who knows the truth about eschatology? The things that are coming in the future. And friends, left to ourselves, how much can we really say with certainty about ethics or about the future? The most honest secular philosophers will admit that there is no basis for ethics left to ourselves. There's no rational basis just left to ourselves in this earth to overarching moral principles that all must adhere to. And even for those who believe that the future is determined by cause and effect, none of them would claim to know what that future is. They would recognize that we can't tell what's coming in the future. And friends, that's what Kohelet is telling us here. Left to ourselves, if all we have is this world, how could we say with certainty what's right and wrong? How could we with certainty say what's coming in the future? Without someone who knows, who knows the future omnisciently telling us what the future is, how can any of us say what's going to come tomorrow or next week or in the years ahead? But it's never stopped us from saying things about ethics and eschatology. It's never stopped us from, from saying thing, making pronouncements about what's right and wrong and about what's going to happen in the future because we have that great felt need for those truths. We know that we need, to, we need to have a standard for right and wrong. God's law is written on our hearts, and so we know there is right and wrong, right or wrong. But we don't have any reason for saying why it's right or wrong left to ourselves. And we know that we need to have some confidence about the future, but we don't have any reason to truly say with certainty what's coming. And this is not, these are not new problems. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 talks about those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Those people aren't saying there's no such thing as right or wrong. They're making wrong pronouncements about what is right or wrong. And that's so often what we do is we, we know there's supposed to be things that are right or wrong, right and wrong. But we and so we make pronouncements. Even the relativists of our day will say this is right and this is wrong, but we have no basis for it. And we constantly we, we constantly act as if we can have confidence about the future. James four, beginning in verse thirteen. James four thirteen and following says, Come now, you will say, You who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We're like kids who have found a board game, and they don't have the instructions, or they can't read the instructions. And so they start playing a game that has nothing to do with the original game. They're just playing with the pieces because they know there's supposed to be a game and there's supposed to be rules. So they make up rules. And they also make up how you win the game. And so they play the game and win the game, but they haven't really played the game. And they haven't really, they don't really conclude the game or end the game. That's, that's how we are with this world without God enlightening, enlightening us about ethics and about eschatology. Because we can't know those things by ourselves. But friends, God has spoken to us by his son. That's the answer to these questions in verse 12. Who knows or who who knows 
Or who can tell man what will be after him? Who knows what is good for man? Jesus knows. God knows. And he has told us through his son. He sent Jesus as our prophet to speak clearly to us. And I hope, I hope all this time in Ecclesiastes has made you treasure God speaking to us. Because we've been seeing the emptiness so often of not having God speaking to us. But this is such a, a key truth here that God has spoken to us by his son. And he's told us about what is right and wrong. He's told us truths about the future that we couldn't have known without him speaking to us. So practically, what does this look like in the way that we deal with the idea of education and the idea of learning and how knowledge might help us? As we've seen in this series, all through this book, we've seen there is much that can be learned from general revelation, from the world around us. There's a lot that can be deduced from looking at this world and observing it carefully. And so there is much that we can learn from unbelievers that they have discerned from this world around us. There's much that we can learn in education that is of value to us because it is God speaking through his world and people understanding those things. But think particularly about the areas of ethics and of eschatology. There's other areas of education we, we could discuss about this, but because those are the topics here, think about ethics and about things about the future. We need to know those truths. We need to know what's right and wrong. We need to know some truths about the future. And we are not going to understand them without God speaking to us, without having God's word. So you need to steep yourself in the word of God. You need to steep yourself in what God has told you about what is right and what is wrong. And you need to steep yourself in what, in what God has told us about the future. Think about what Jesus, your prophet, has given you in his word about ethics, about what is right and wrong. And meditate on it. On it. We're, in a, we're in a culture, even a Christian culture, that doesn't like the concept of obedience or of the law of God. But it is such a treasure to know what is right and what is wrong. We should be meditating on these things. And your children, if you have children, if you have young people in your life, they need to know the word of God. They need to have the word of God in their lives regularly and clearly because the culture around them is not going to teach them rightly about ethics and about eschatology, among many other things. They need this as a regular part of their lives. You need this as a regular part of your life because you won't learn it outside of God revealing it in his word. Spend time making sure that you're well-versed in what God has told us about the future. He hasn't told us everything about the future. There are many days I wish he'd told us more about the future, but he's told us what we need to know. And there are things he's told us about the future that are very helpful in the way that we discuss current issues. Think about the promise that God has given us that seed time and harvest, summer and winter, will not fail until Jesus returns, until the end of this world. When you know that, when you believe that, that means we don't, you don't have to spend your time trying to figure out how we're going to colonize another planet when we make this planet unlivable, because God has promised that if someone is going to make this unliv- planet unlivable, he will stop them. He will make sure that this world continues to be a livable place, so we don't have to devote our time figuring out how to live on Mars. Because we are going to be able to live on this earth till the day that Jesus returns. That's a thing about the future you couldn't know if God had not told you. And you see the fear and the anxiety in people's hearts today because they don't know that truth from God's word. Or think about the simple truth of the resurrection. That every single person on this earth who has ever lived will be raised out of their graves at that last day and will face the judgment seat of Christ. You couldn't know that if God had not revealed it to you. If God had not spoken it to you by his prophet, but he has. And that radically changes the way you live your life. It means that we're not trying to hang on to this body 
trying to preserve this body at all costs because we know that no matter what happens to this body, even if, we're, even if it becomes completely destroyed by those who don't want to hear the gospel, even if you go to, to a far off land and you're killed and your, your body is just dispersed and there's no remnant of your body visibly left, we're told in Revelation that even the sea will give up its dead. It's not going to stop God from raising you from the dead on that day. And you can go with confidence then. What can man do to you? But you only can do that if you know what your prophet has told you. What Jesus has told you about the future. Power, diplomacy, and education. Which one are you tempted most to try to rely on and to find your hope in? We sang from Psalm 20 earlier that says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. But remember the context of that verse. The hope in the Lord that 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 psalm is talking about is tied up with hope in his anointed, in his Messiah, in his King Jesus Christ. Because this is our confidence in the face of life's struggles, in the face of the vanity of this world. This is Psalm 20 again. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, his Messiah. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us to our own strength or our own ability, abilities. We want to rely on ourselves. But Lord, we see again and again how unreliable we are, how weak we are. And so we thank you for sending your son to be our mediator, to be our prophet, our priest, and our king, to protect us, to intercede for us, to speak to us. And so Lord, please help us to rely on his strength, on your strength alone. And then, Lord, help us to live in this world as instruments in your hands, as we seek to protect life, as we seek to bring justice and righteousness into this world, to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But, Lord, please help us never to do it relying on ourselves, but always to be looking to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.